Glory to God. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. God is always good. The devil is always bad. Am I okay? Okay. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we are grateful and thankful for this night. We thank you and honor you that you have given us a written word to come to know you better, to know how to conduct life, to know how to live for you, that it establishes the boundaries in our life, that it establishes the blessing in our life, that it establishes in our life the ability and the courage to live in the kingdom of God. We thank you and praise you, Father, that no weapon formed against us will prosper. We thank you and praise you that this word is a habitation for us, a dwelling place, Father, that we run into your name. We run into the word of God, and we are kept safe and protected. And we give you praise, Father, that tonight your word penetrates our heart in deep levels, deep places, Father, that we hear from heaven and are changed from glory to glory. And we praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. We've been talking the last couple weeks about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And um, understand that one of the things that can make your life full of stress is trying to live in both kingdoms. Trying to live in both kingdoms. When you decide, I am living for the kingdom of God only, it eliminates a lot of options, which in turn eliminates a lot of stress. When it's an exclusive for you, if you only have one pair of shoes to choose from in the morning, you're not questioning which ones am I going to wear, right? When there's, when there's only one car to drive, you don't go out to the driveway and think, which one should I drive? The, it's already been settled and established. And so what we've been talking about is getting a living for the kingdom life settled, established in your heart that the option is gone, so the stress is gone. Amen? Colossians 1.13, if you want to go there, we're just going to do a little bit of review. Maybe a lot of review. I don't know. Philippi uh, Colossians, I was in Philippians, 1.13 says that he, meaning Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. So Jesus did a work on our behalf, and the work he did was took us out of the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Meaning that this kingdom of darkness no longer has right, dominion, and authority over us. But instead, we've been shifted and moved into a kingdom of the Son of his love. So now the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the son of his love is our dwelling place. It's meant to be our habitation. It's meant to be our home. That place is made for us. Amen. 
So we're now under the jurisdiction of the king of love. No longer under the king of darkness. All right? Um, incidentally, I want to say this. When you think about the kingdom of darkness and the king of darkness, which is Satan himself, and the kingdom of God and God himself who is king over here, understand this. They are not equals. They are not equals. The enemy is not an equal in opposition to God. He is far less. All right? There is three classes in the spirit realm. We have God, which the only ones that live in that are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then we have man, which is you and I, which has access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is us. We are of the man level of being. And then we have the angelic level of being below us that has to hearken and obey the commands from either of those two higher levels. Right? They have to hearken and listen to the commands out of the man level, and they have to hearken and listen to the commands out of the God level. And the enemy is out of this lowest level. He is not out of the God level. He is not out of the man level. He is out of the lowest level having to take orders from either God or man. Okay? And with that said, the only way then the enemy gets the authority over you if someone in this man level gives him the place to have that power. Because if someone in this level above him gives him an opportunity to be strong and powerful, he'll take it. But he has been subjected to a lower level unless somebody up here gives him that authority. Now, we know God already kicked him out. We already know God defeated him. So now it's up to us. What are we going to do with him? Are we going to kick him out? And are we going to enforce that defeat? Amen? All right, that was new news, right? Wasn't reviews. All right. And so we have these two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And between these two is where we stand with the power of a choice, of choosing which one to obey, which one to follow, which one to reinforce in our life, which one to be drawn to, which one to acknowledge, which one to yield to. We stand in the middle of that. And the word tells us in Romans 6, I didn't give him this scripture, that whoever we subject ourselves, servants to obey, we become that one's servants to whom we must obey. Okay? So whichever kingdom you yield to, you become a slave to that kingdom. Even if you think, I don't want to, but if you're yielding to it, it doesn't make any difference, does it? All right? So let's look over at James chapter 4 in verse number 7. It says, therefore, and it tells us how to deal with these kingdoms. Submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee. So in our choosing, we have to get proficient at submission to God and refusal of the enemy. 
Submission to God, refusal of the enemy. Because the quality of our life is entirely dependent on how well we submit to God and how well we resist the enemy. All right? And we even learned that what we're supposed to do is if this kingdom is not in operation of our li- in our life, we call to this kingdom and we tell this kingdom to move. We call this one in and we move that one out. All right? We call to this one and we move out this one. Now, in light of that, then what we see if, if we're submitting to one and resisting the enemy, what we're doing is the choice is in us which one will we yield to? Because submission is a yielding and resisting is an unyielding. So it's all about our yielding. Which one are we going to give ourselves to? Which one are we going to give ourselves um, to be authority into our life? All right? So... Um, We talked then last week about one of the things that dictates our choice, and that was desire, our desire. And we found out the word desire is a compound word meaning D, meaning the, and sire was the father parent. And so what we found out is desires are the parenting authority of our heart, meaning the direction the identification, everything that our heart wants to do is going to be governed by what our desires are. So you can say it this way, your want to is controlling your life or your want not to. Your want to is controlling your life. And the way the kingdoms work is When we draw to the kingdom of God, it begins to draw you in. All right? But what the enemy is doing is he's constantly trying to draw on you and pull you, draw on you and pull you, draw on you and pull you. But because you stand in the middle with a choice, this one doesn't have to have power over you, and this one doesn't have to have power over you. Neither one of them have power or authority over you. What has the power and the authority over you is your choosing. Amen? But what we are going, So what we looked at last week is changing what we want. All right? Without your want to for God, there will be no God. Without wanting God... There is no God in your life, all right? So, because God will never take a place where he is not wanted. He operates by invitation, not by dictatorship. He doesn't control you. He has to be invited, amen? So, let's look at a couple things. Mark chapter 4. Are we still reviewing? Kind of. You want to hear something new or is the same thing again okay? Okay, now Mark 4, 18 says, These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world 
the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word. Your desire can choke the word out. Your desires can make the word of God ineffective, non-effective. Your desire to do anything else can make the word of God ineffective in your life. Even though the word of God, the kingdom of God has the power to give you the best life possible, give you abundant blessing, abundant peace, abundant joy. If your desire is set on something other than that kingdom, it will not come to pass. Now, remember this we talked about last week, that the enemy has some of those things because he uses the things that look like the benefits and the blessings as relief to draw you in. But always remember, it's just bait. It's just bait. Because if he can get you to move back into that kingdom, then you have yielded yourself to become a slave to obey so his next move, you are subject to, and you didn't even think you gave him permission. I recently was listening to a minister, and he was talking about lying. He was talking about lying, and he said, we haven't made a big enough deal out of lying because every lie looses a bad spirit because the enemy himself is known as the father of all lies. And we haven't taken it serious enough. I'll just lie because it'll get, you know, the situation fixed or repair the situation. But what we're not aware of is it's a yielding to the wrong kingdom and we have just loosed an evil spirit. Are you hearing that? All right. So these desires can quench the effectiveness of the word of God to where the word of God produces no fruit. It's fruit-bearing word that's ineffective because of what you want. Hallelujah. Let's go over to James. We're still reviewing. Don't panic. It will get better. James chapter 1, verse number 14. It says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Not what God wants, not what the enemy wants. See, you are the initiation of the sin in your life. Hallelujah. So let's go on to verse 15. Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And we talked about desire has a conceiving point, a conception. And what that conception is, is action and ability, and now we've got sin. Your desire has now become sin because you put action and ability to it. All right? And now it's produced sin if it's a wrong desire, of course. And sin will always lead to death, all right? But he's talking about your desires are the starting point of all sin, all right? And we talked about, remember this, we talked about, so stop the desire before conception. 
It's easier to stop desire than stop sin. All right? But we have to understand that a wrong choosing comes from having a wrong desire. So if we will change our desires, the choices will take care of themselves. If we'll take care of our desires, if we will govern our desires, if we'll watch over our want to, then the, the choices will be made correctly. Okay? But the trick is, no one else can change your want to. No one else can govern your want to. No one else can make you do in your heart what you ought to do except you. It doesn't matter how hard we try, how much persuasion, how much, that, uh, how many boundaries or, or rules or requirements or strategies. No one can change your want to but you. Amen. And so what, we can say it this way. We have become a product of our desires because our desire has determined our spiritual pace and direction. You are, you are a product of your desires. So then, with maturity, with development in God, this is what we have to do. We have to be seriously and deeply honest about our want to. We have to be brutally honest about our want to. What I want to do. Because it's when we get brutally honest about our want to that we can see which kingdom we're headed toward. When we start judging what we want, we can see which one we're drawing toward. And sometimes... Um, it gets a little bit confusing because we want something to be easy. And God says, no, but I'll make it simple. We want it to be instant. And God says, no, I'm going to make it eternal. We want it to be promotion. And God says, but I'm going to give you a process. We want relief. He wants to give results. We want to redo. Have you ever wanted to redo? He said, no, let's do restoration instead. See, because easy, instant promotion, relief, and redo are all momentary. But simple, eternal process, results, and restoration are forever. And what we have to do is control our want to so we get the results of this kingdom working in every area of our life, all right? Now, um, understand this, that your desires, what you want, your want to, is a byproduct of your spiritual appetite, of your hunger, of what you're hungry for. You know, um, if you haven't eaten um, in, a, in, in a day, in the morning, suddenly you have a desire for whatever and it may not even be something you usually eat you know but when you haven't eaten you a desire comes up when there is a hunger desire comes up desire will always come out of being hungry you can take your spiritual temperature your spiritual health by how hungry you are even in the natural 
If you're hungry, it's a good sign. If you have no appetite, that's not a good sign. Okay? And so you have to decide, what am I hungering for? More of something of something, less of something of something, whatever it is. What are you hungry for? Because that hunger is going to create in your heart a desire, and that desire is going to lead you to one kingdom or another. And so what we have to understand is we can't be result-driven in our hunger. We have to be kingdom-driven in our hunger, or we could go astray. All right? Um, so I was doing some, a little bit of study today on what happens when you're hungry. So these are the stages of starvation. I recommend you don't spiritually starve yourself. I recommend you don't naturally starve yourself. But this is what happens when you're hungry and you're starving. So we can say it this way. If you're wanting this kingdom, but you're not feeding on this kingdom, you're going to end up spiritually starved. You're going to end up spiritually starved because you have to feed to continue to cause hunger. You've got to feed if you want to remain healthy. You've got to continue to feed. So the first stage of starvation is hungry. You're just hungry, okay? You want something. You need something. And you could picture starvation as this intense craving that you've got to have. Now, at any point along this line, if you begin to feed on the word of God, you will begin to tap to that kingdom. Because as you draw near to that kingdom, that kingdom draws near to you. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are you if you crave and want the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, okay? So you are blessed. You are empowered if you will have an appetite for God, all right? And then it says you'll be filled, meaning you'll be satisfied. You can hunger for relief and never get satisfied. But if you hunger for the kingdom of God, you'll get a result and be satisfied. Okay? So the first thing is you're hungry. The next thing, without feeding that hunger, you start to get not so hungry anymore. And we see this often in the area of desires. I really want to be at church. I really want to do something in the kingdom. I really want to spend time with the Lord. I really want to do some prayer. I really want to do this. I really want to do that. But if you don't start feeding that, pretty soon, I don't know. I'm not as hungry as I once was. I, I'm, I'm not as determined as I once was. The, the, the pull and the draw is gone. The desire for food is beginning to wane. And this is what happens spiritually. If you don't continue feeding, the desire for feeding on God begins to wane. It begins to be quenched. But the interesting thing about this, in this level of starvation, is 
what happens then? You begin to be less hungry, but yet your body starts feeding on other things. And a new type of energy comes to you. Listen closely to this. When you stop feeding on the word of God, your body begins, your spirit man begins to feed on other things. And it has a different type of vitality and energy that says, I don't need food anymore. I've got enough sustenance and I'm strong. This so often is what happens. The word of God says in Proverbs 18, 1, that, that you begin to isolate yourself and seek, wisdom, seek your own wise judgment. Because we will all have this test in our spiritual life of not needing to feed on God. Because, and this is, this is where you get, you'll run into somebody that hasn't been to church for six weeks. How are you doing? Better than ever. I'm doing better than we've ever done. Has anybody else but me ever run into that? <laughs> I'm doing better than I've ever done. We're doing better than I've ever been. But you're not feeding on God. And what's happened is your spirit man is starting to take in a substitute food that's giving you phony energy. It's what happens. Because your spirit man will feed on a phony spiritual food and get you a phony energy. And they think they're doing good and they're in starve mode. Hallelujah. Okay, so first you have this hunger and then the hungry, hunger begins to uh, wane. And, but then there's this false energy because it's starting to feed on other things. But then the next thing that happens... And medically, they can tell you even about how many days this is. It begins to, the next thing it says it does is it begins to alter mental process. The judgments and the discernments are gone now. How do I find myself doing things I was once convicted about doing and now I'm doing them again? And one time I didn't feel like I could do those things. And some people call that freedom, but spiritually, that's starvation. And see, what happens is the mental ability to think things through is now being altered. The spiritual discernment and wisdom you once had when you were feeding on the word of God is no longer present. Hallelujah. Are you hearing it? All right. Because if we don't feed, we get less hungry, and then the mental processes begin to be altered. All right? And we, we don't think straight. You're not thinking right. You're not thinking right. And um, so many times this happens because the desire wasn't governed to eat when you're supposed to eat and eat what you're supposed to eat, a starvation process has begun, and not only have you fed on phony food and think you've got all this energy, but now you're not even thinking square and straight. You're not even thinking, you're thinking squirrely. Hallelujah. We all know people 
that at one time were spiritual giants that we wonder, how did they get to that place? Right here. They didn't control their desire, so they quit eating God's kingdom. Hallelujah. All right, so the next thing, after the mental processes go, then there is a depleted muscle function. Medical science even says this. In this depleted muscle function, there is no strength, but we notice there becomes an apathetic, withdrawing attitude. They said that. I didn't say that. An apathetic, withdrawing attitude. If you feel like backing away from your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're starving spiritually. God always believes in unity and assembly. He always believes in unity and assembly. And you can find yourself with this withdrawing, it doesn't matter, I don't care, what's the difference, hasn't done me any good. You're on four the fourth level of spiritual starvation. Hallelujah. And the last one, are you ready? Death. Death. So when you find yourself in that withdrawing, apathetic place, the next place is death. The interesting thing it said was that some people could starve in as few as 30 days, and some people it will take as much as 70 days. Hallelujah. I don't know if that's about size or how fast they go through these phases or stages. I don't know. But you have to decide, I'm not going to let that process in my life. I am going to govern my hunger, which is dictating my desire, and I will consistently feed. How many of you have ever found yourself in the place that you're feeding on the wrong things and feel like you have sustained energy, but now know it wasn't really God energy? How many of you have ever been in a place when you aren't able to spiritually discern like you once were or didn't have the same convictions you once had? How many of you have ever found yourself in a place of depleted strength where you want to just withdraw? See, all of those are symptoms of spiritual hunger that's not fed right. All of those things mean that spiritually, I'm not the place I should be, could be, or ought to be, okay? Now, the beautiful thing about this is if you will govern your desire, you can get your hunger fixed. You can get your hunger fixed. If you'll just say, I don't want to go to church, but bless the Lord, I'm taking authority over my want to right now, and I'm going to church. Most people will fight going to church, but once they've been there, they're glad they did. Can you agree with that? See, the war is in the want to. And then after it's over, there is a result that comes out of the kingdom of God working on you. It's that silly want to. 
You know, how many times that want to has to be just thrust down. See, the battle for our life is in our mind. Well, our want to is right there. Amen. Hallelujah. So we have to cultivate the right desire so that way, that, um, that way then um, uh, the right hunger is, uh, hunger is fed correctly. That's what I'm saying. And always know this, your hunger for God is a very big deal. In fact, spiritually, it's the biggest deal you've got. Because if you're not hungry, you won't eat. And if you won't eat, you will die. Your hunger for God is the biggest deal you've got. And if you aren't hungry, you're already beginning the process of spiritual uh, starvation. And you'll start where now I'm not so hungry. Now I'm gonna, now what's happened is I'm feeding off the wrong thing. And I think I'm doing great. And everyone else is looking and saying, not so. Not today, motor scooter. <laughs> you guys all remember that, don't you? And then you're not thinking straight. You're allowing things you know better than. You're doing things you know you ought not to do. Hallelujah. And every one of these levels comes with a whole new series of want-tos. All right? And then you get that depleted muscle function and strength where you want to withdraw. And then we know the last one. I don't have to bring it up again. Right? See, because every hunger or desire will create a void or a vacuum. So if you have a desire or a hunger for God, it creates a void or a vacuum. All right. So in you, when you have a hunger and appetite for God, it creates a void or a vacuum. And God says, I see that void. I'm coming to fill it. It's just like um, spiritually in the old covenant, it told them when the when it's um, the clouds and um, the heavens are closed up. He didn't say he didn't say, I'm just going to start raining. He said, if my people will turn and start drawing, so you're going to have to have a desire. If my people will stir a desire for God, God will come and break through. He always promised that. If my people will just desire it, I'll break through and get to them. I'll get through and break through and get to them. But if my people don't have any desire, I have no way to get there. So it's about cultivating, creating, and keeping a heart for God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And you can search and search for something to fill that hole or that vacuum, but the only thing that promises to be able to fill it and satisfy it is God himself. Okay? And the enemy is always wanting to stop your hunger. He is always, always wanting to stop your hunger because if he can stop your hunger, that means you've quit drawing close to God and God has quit drawing close to you. And so then by default, because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, if you're not drawing to God, you're being sucked into the enemy. What you're not pursuing intentionally, then you're automatically being drawn on. All right. And he wants to stop your hunger 
and your desire because then he can stop your spiritual development. The level of your spiritual development today is a culmination of your choices you've made based on your desires. The spiritual position you're in today, the spiritual maturity you're at today is the culmination of the choices you've made based on your desires. It's not how long you've been in the kingdom, but it's how deep did you choose God. And not just choose God because I chose God when I got born again, so I'm born again. No, in the day-to-day, when you had a choice to say something or not say something, which kingdom did you yield to? When you had the opportunity to go or stay home, which kingdom did you yield to? When you had the opportunity to be a blessing or speak cursing, which one did you yield to? It's those small daily decisions that have added up to make you who you are today. It's that culmination of those options that you took the right door to that has caused you to grow. All right? And we cannot afford to give the enemy any place. Go over to, if you go over to Ephesians chapter 4, because he just wants a little piece, and then he'll take more. He takes as much as he possibly can. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Next verse, please. Nor give place to the devil. All right, so I would think being angry um, would be the problem. He said, no, you can be angry and not sin, but don't you ever give place to the devil. Okay? Um, So he's saying don't give an opportunity. Some of your Bibles might even say that. Don't give an opportunity for the enemy. And the word opportunity is defined as a time or space favorable for one's purpose. So what we can't do is give time or space favorable for the enemy's purposes. We can't give him time or space. We can't allow him a crack. We can't let him in. All right? We can't give him an opportunity. We can't give him a place that he can get in. How would you give the enemy a place? How would you give the enemy a place? Well, mostly I give the enemy a place by not opposing him. How does a burglar get a place in your house? You don't keep him out. You don't keep him out. So how does the enemy get a place? We don't keep him out. We don't keep him out. Why don't we keep him out? Because our want to is aligned with his plan. So what we have to do is take an honest look at our desire and decide, is this a desire that's birthed out of heaven? Is this a desire birthed from the enemy? Because I refuse to give the enemy a place. I will not give him any place for his purpose. Amen? Hallelujah. And it says, give him no place. And to give just means to yield. Don't yield a place for the enemy. Don't give him time or space that he can use for his purposes. All right? So I want to go over to Revelations chapter 3 because we're talking about how the enemy does some things. Revelations chapter 3, starting in verse 14. 
And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Did you all get that? Did you get that or did you get what was on the board? I'm asking an honest question because this is what the enemy does. He distracts you. He distracts you. The word was speaking, but the picture before the eye was something different. Do you understand what I'm saying? If he can distract you, you could have seen it. How many of you saw an adult Christmas dinner up there? Okay. And the enemy would do this thing. Oh, I wonder what I should bring to that thing. That, do you understand what I'm saying? Or gifts for giggles. I wonder what time we have to be there for that. The, the word's being spoken. And if you think that you're going to go out there in the world and not have the opportunities like that to be distracted, to distort your desires and your intentions, we're all fooled. Because that's exactly the way it works. It works constantly. We're trying to zone in on God. Now, these two boys are reading and using their own Bibles. They probably don't even know what I was talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but if you don't zone in on God and decide, I'm protecting my hunger right now. I've got a moment and a time where I refuse to be distracted. Nothing else can creep into my heart. You will always have a war. You always have a war. You have to protect it. You have to guard it. You can't be distracted. How many of you know you could never give God time, never give him time, and still have something to do during that time? You always have something else to do, is what I'm trying to say. You always have something else to do. There is always something else to do. And we're so good in America, even if we didn't have something to do, we'd create something to do. We call them hobbies. Okay? We always will have something else to do. But what we have to decide is my hunger, my desires, for God is the only thing that's going to really satisfy my heart and create in me the life I want to have. So I refuse to be torn away from what will get me that. And you have to govern the desires. Well, God wants me to enjoy life, so I'll just do this. But if you do this without God, it's going to lead you astray 
and pretty soon you're going to be withdrawing. Pretty soon you don't have any hunger. Pretty soon you're feeding on the wrong things. You've got false energy, and everyone knows I'm, you're not doing well, and you think you're doing great. Oh, it will get better. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory to God. So let's reread this. Revelation 3. All right, let's go. Let's start with verse 15, though, if we can do that. And this is to the church of the Laodiceans and the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. So he says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Let me give you some, let me give you some understanding of this. Because why would it be better to be cold than warm? See, in our, in our mentality, it's better to be warm than cold. But um, the city of Laodicea was a city between a couple other cities, according to scholars. One city is, I don't know, it starts with an H, Hierapolis or Hierapolis or something like that. And the other one was Colossae. And out of Colossae, there was cold, cold water, refreshing cold water there. When it's hot, there's nothing better than really good cold water, right? In the other city was a city that had um, seismic activity, and they had hot springs. And so those hot springs, people would come from miles and miles and miles around to sit in those hot springs because they were healing. And then we have Laodicea in the middle. So we have cold, refreshing water here. We have hot, healing water here. And we have Laodicea in the middle. Well, the Laodiceans decided, we're going to get some of that hot water and bring it to our town so we can have healing water too. The only problem, when you put hot water in a pipe for a long distance, by the time it gets there, it's no longer hot. And the rest of the story is, it stinks. And it's not even good and tasty, okay? If, have even any of you been around sulfur water before? <laughs> I can tell the ones that have, okay? Now, sulfur water is what this made me think of when I was reading this, and you don't want to drink it because you get it to your nose, and you're like, Wah! this is what it's talking about. And he's saying, you're not hot, and you're not cold, and I want to spew you out of your, my mouth. And that's exactly what he's referring to. I wish you would have some healing power and, or some refreshing ability. You have neither one. And he says, and then you are lukewarm. I'll vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. So what this is telling us is they have satisfied their desires with what they can do. And because they've satisfied their desires with what they can do, they have no accurate um, uh, analysis of how the, who they really are. Because he goes on, and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you're doing okay. But God said, but you've filled everything you would want with what you can do, and you don't even know you're wretched, poor, miserable, and blind. 
Because what happened is you had a desire, but you satisfied your desire without me. You satisfied that desire without me. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says, I counsel you to buy from me. And then he goes on in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He's saying this, come close enough to me that you are convicted of this and I will correct you of this and then you'll have be different. But most people don't like to come close enough to the Lord to be corrected. They like to stay in their place. But look at this. Jesus says this, I only correct the people I love. And sometimes we have to say, if he corrects me, he still loves me. So we should welcome correction because he still loves us when he's correcting us. Amen? But then he goes on and says in verse 20, this is where we wanted to get to. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Do you notice that Jesus is always available, but he never opens the door himself. He is always available, but he never opens the door. He said, if you'll listen and you hear and you'll open the door, I'll come in and we'll sit down and we'll eat. But he will never open the door. And then it goes on in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So he says you have to overcome something. So what is it you have to overcome? You have to overcome being lukewarm. How are you going to be able to overcome being lukewarm? You're going to have to govern your desire to keep God as its target. Because if you don't target God, you will automatically become lukewarm because you're going to try to pipe some water in. And there's going to be no healing and no refreshing. And then we have this spewing thing going on. All right? But we have to govern our want to, otherwise lukewarm will become a default. And the problem with lukewarm, it's a little bit warm and a little bit cool, so makes everybody feel like they're just right. This is not mama bear porridge, baby bear porridge, papa bear porridge, okay? You want to be hot or cold. And so what you've got to overcome is the temptation to not be hot, to not be refreshing, to not be healing. You've got to govern that desire to say, I'm going to stay on track. Amen. And you've got to pass those levels of development in your desires. You have to pass those fences. Remember I drew the fences last week? You pass the fences. And every time you pass a fence, you have to make a determination, I will never go back there again. And then you pass another fence, and you make a determination, I will never go back there again. 
But if you think you ever arrive and don't have to contend for forward movement, you're going to break right through all those fences. You have to contend for fervency in God. You have to contend for maintaining desire in God. All right? So let's go over to Revelation chapter 2 and look at another one. Chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saying, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstand, I know your works. Listen to this. This is what he knows about them. Their works, their labor, their patience, or their um, perseverance, that you cannot bear or endure those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. All of those things are good things. Works, labor, patience, you know, being able to discern good and evil, right and wrong. All of those things are admirable things. Those are good qualities. Those are excellent things. But he says, I have this against you, that you left your first love. He said, you left your first love. To leave the first love is the same word that means to send away. Other places in the word of God, it's used as the word divorce. And it's not talking about you divorce God, you divorce your love for God. You set aside your love for God. Remember your first love. Remember at the very beginning when you are desperate and you are destitute and nothing else could fix it. No one else could answer what was in your heart. No one else could fix what was going on in your life. The, the, um, the desperation you had for help, the hunger you had for being different, for things wanting change. Do you remember that? And then God came in and did something, and it so satisfied your heart. You were, might have been on the verge of divorce. You might have been on the verge of death. You might have been on the verge of destitution. You might have had a kid at stake. You might have had something going on in your life. And you remember God came in and remember how you felt about God at that moment. Remember that first moment of having God come in. Remember what it felt like. Remember what he did. Remember what it meant to you. Remember the change that went on on the inside? Remember how the weights fell off and all the shackles were gone and the blinders were removed? Remember all that? Because he says, you've left all that remembering of that. And now you've become busy just doing the things in the kingdom of God. But always know this, love always has desire. Love always has desire. So the bottom problem was you left your first love. So now what's happened is you've gotten yourself busy 
but you're not hungry. You're not hungry anymore. And he says this in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Just because you're doing all the right stuff in the kingdom, just because you got it all square in the kingdom, if you're not in love and have a hunger and appetite from God, you're operating at a lower level than you originally were at when you came into the kingdom. Because it's the hunger, the love, and the desire for him that is a promotion above all the busyness of the kingdom. Hallelujah. See, he's wanting us to be so in love with him that there are no other options. No distractions stand in the way. No distortion of hearing his voice. No disruption to our life. Because what he wants is to give you all of this kingdom so you feel like you're living in heaven while you're here on the earth. He wants everything of the highest possible good for you. But without hunger, it cannot happen. Without desire, it cannot happen. And you can feed on false food and have a phony strength and think you've got it, but yet you're falling short of the days of heaven on earth because you still got all this craziness going on around you. And God said, if you'll remember that first love, think about it. So it will create a desire within you just for me again. Remember that moment. You know, some of you might have been in third grade. I don't know. But still, it was life-changing. And he's saying, can you call to remembrance that first love? Because if you'll remember that first love, then he goes on to say that repent and do the first works. So works with hunger for God, in God's eyes, don't even look like works without hunger for God. They don't even look the same. Because works with hunger have a higher place in his perspective. Amen? And then he goes on to say, I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. And one um, translator says it this way. That means he will remove your light and you'll be existing without light. So if you can't keep your first love in place, you find yourself, listen to this, you find yourself in church existing without light. And what is light? Light is where the joy is where the pleasure, where the, where the insight, where the revelation, where all of that is. So maybe the problem isn't that we need more light. Maybe the issue is maybe we need more love for him. Amen? So verse 7 says, He who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes... 
Overcomes what? Overcomes this temptation to let go of your first love. That temptation is out there, and it's a pull toward the kingdom of darkness. But he says, you have to overcome living without your first love. And, you know, it does you good to just once in a while sit and remember what it was at that first moment. How many of you remember the first moment you laid eyes on your spouse? I don't remember when I saw Jerry, but I remember when he saw me. Because uh-huh. <laughs> it was very embarrassing. Hallelujah. You know, there's, the, there's those moments, okay? There's those moments of first contact that are powerful and impactful. And that's what God wants us to remember. Remember those moments of contact and impact that I had with you. Because all that will do is stimulate desire and hunger in you. And then everything you do will be easy and a delight. And that's what he's asking of us. Remember those moments. Remember those moments. Because our entire spiritual development is how well we'll govern those desires and that hunger. How well we'll guard and watch over those desires and that hunger. Keep it. Your hunger for God is precious to him. Your appetite for God is very, very precious. Well, I'm hungry for God, but I'm not hungry. Come on now. Don't yield to the kingdom of darkness. Don't yield to that darkness. You don't want that darkness to govern you. Unforgiveness, that's that kingdom. Okay? Malice, that's that kingdom. Okay? Don't yield to that because we're trying to get to be days of heaven on earth. Amen? All right. Hallelujah. So, in closing then, let's go to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter one, verse number six says, therefore, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. I remind you, Timothy's got a lot going on right then in his life. Timothy's got a mass of horrible things going on in his life. And I'm talking about horrible things we're not experiencing. Like people in church are being killed. Okay. And they're coming to take down Christians and all these kind of things. Leadership, whatever. Um, and, and Paul's saying, I remind you, Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul laid hands on Timothy to have the gift of God in him. But it doesn't matter if anyone's laid hands on you or not. The command to stir it up was given to Timothy. So the command to stir it up is to you. And he says, you're going to have to stir it. You're going to have to stir it. Well, I don't want to stir it. Well, now we've got our problem. Look, listen to Tate message two weeks ago, if that's the problem, right? We got to change that want to. The want to can be wrong. It can feel right and be wrong. We have to change the want to, to make it be right. All right? And he says, you stir it up. You stir up right desire. You stir up a want to. You stir it up in yourself. You may not want God. You stir up in yourself. I want God. 
and you talk to yourself and you say, I'm stirring up right now a desire for God hotter than I've ever had before. You begin to talk to yourself and stir it up. Because once you start stirring it up, you're drawing to God and he's meeting you and he's giving you strength and courage to be stirred up. You have to stir it up. You go to bed every night and you declare, I am so stirred up for God. When you don't feel like it and you're exhausted, you have to say, I'm stirred up for God. Because just by you saying that, there is a resistance to the kingdom of darkness that's trying to entice you into being casual. You have to keep after it. Stir it up. And he says, this is the reason you can stir it up. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. What that means is intimidation or timidity. God has not given you a spirit to fall under any power of darkness. He has not given you an attitude and a heart that's timid at the face of darkness. That's coward when the, uh, the wrong desires are coming at you. He's not giving you that spirit that you have to be thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. No, he says God's given you a spirit of power. He's given you a spirit of love. And he's given you a sound mind. So stir it up. What are you stirring up? The power, the love, and the sound mind that he's given you. Stir it up. Stir up the power of God. Stir up the love of God. Stir up a sound mind. The devil can't do anything unless you yield to him. Hallelujah. You got to stir it up. Because if you're going by how you feel, people in hell went by how they felt. People in darkness went by how they felt. You don't want to live by how you feel. You want to live by how the word of God says you can live. You want to live according to the word of God and what you can have. But it's not going to be automatic. And your feelings will mislead you. Your desires will mislead you. So you have to stir up a heart and an attitude for God. And you have to work at it. But see, once you make, stir it up at a certain level, then you will never go back again to that lower level if you keep stirring it up. And then your growth and development will just be constant and perpetual to the place that you become stronger and mightier in God. Amen? So we have to stir it up. We have to stir it up. Do you know that your desire... When you come into this house for a service, will determine if the minister can minister in the house. It will determine that. When you are um, communicating and talking with other people, your desire to love them will pull good things from them. See, your Desire creates a vacuum, a hole to be filled. And so your desire in this house has more to do with the word you hear in this house than even the time I spend preparing. Because you're the ones creating the vacuum. 
I created a vacuum for me to be filled, but then you have to create a vacuum for you to be filled. Hallelujah. So it's all about desire. So you can all come in here on Sunday and you can pull with a level of desire that will get the pastor to say things that he's never even contemplated before and to do, be able to speak things that he didn't even know he knew. But the spirit of God within him knew. See, and so what we have to start thinking about is how can we create such a desire that we can pull from God deeper things than the earth has ever seen before. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Why do you think the Holy Spirit and fire night kept getting stronger and stronger in the anointing? Greater and greater desire. Why do healing meetings for certain people work so fluently? Because the desire of the people to draw is there. Well, it works the same for you one-on-one -on -one in your time with the Lord. If you'll just create, sit before God, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. Just say, God, I want you. And if you're not there yet, say, Lord, I want to want you. I, want, I really want to be hungry for you. And you start saying things like this, God, help me be hungrier for you. And you can even sense it immediately. He's there to do that. Help me want this more. Help me to not be so obligated to the affairs of life. Help me to draw more. And he's always available. And he's been knocking for a long time. And he's just waiting to come in and sup. Dine, eat. I don't know. Maybe Jesus likes chicken dinners. I don't know. Hallelujah. But just know that he's willing and he's available. And all you have to do is create a vacuum of desire and he'll fill it. He'll fill it every time. But it's going to take you, it's going to require you some time. Because you don't get to do it while you're driving down the road because then there's a, a chance you'll be... Uh, uh, danger to other people okay so do it in a time and a space he says go into your closet and shut the door why is that because then nobody can see your face when he comes and you're going all right praise the lord why don't y'all stand to your feet hallelujah create create a vacuum of desire and he'll fill it i promise you if you will create a desire for god he will do something he's never done before for you. Hallelujah. Because that's the way the kingdom works. Amen. Father, we're grateful and thankful for this night. We ask, Father, for help with our want to. We are willing to be made willing, Father. And Father, right now we take time to declare that we are stirred up. We are stirred up even in the busiest season of the year. We are stirred up 
to serve God with a fervent heart. We set everything aside right now in this moment through all the chaos, through all those things going on, through all the family issues, the gift issues, the decoration issues, all of those issues, the financial issues, the lonely issues. We set it all aside right now and declare, God, we are hungry for you. Stir us up, God. Help us to grow and develop. Plant within us greater hunger and desire. And we thank you and we praise you for it, Father. To you be all the glory that you are creating and energizing in us a desire and a will to do for your good pleasure, your satisfaction and your delight. Set our hearts on you and you alone, Father. And Father, help us to declare constantly that we are stirred up. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. We'd like to take this opportunity to encourage those listening from anywhere in Central Oregon to join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. for our regular services. We understand that many do not have a home church, and we can't emphasize enough the importance of connecting with a church family. We'd be honored to meet you and spend time with you praising God.